0: This is the Insight is Capital podcast.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual podcasters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of advisoranalyst.com. This podcast is meant to be for informational purposes only. Nothing discussed in this podcast is intended to be considered as advice.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Insight is Capital podcast. My name is Pierre Daly, Managing Editor of advisoranalyst.com. Our guests today are Rodrigo Gordillo and Mike Philbrick from Resolve Asset Management. Rodrigo and Mike, along with Adam Butler, are co-founders and portfolio managers at Resolve Asset Management for the Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, the Horizons Global Risk Parity ETF, ticker HRA, as well as Resolve's managed accounts. Prior to co-founding Resolve Asset Management in 2015, they were portfolio managers at Dundee Private Wealth, Richardson GMP and Macquarie Private Wealth. They are also co-authors of their book, Adaptive Asset Allocation, Dynamic Global Portfolios to Profit in Good Times and Bad, published by Wiley. Gentlemen, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, always a pleasure. I'm curious to know what your clients, what's going on in your shop, what your clients are phoning in about, what they're asking you, what are the most relevant conversations you're having? One of them might be, you know, what the hell is going on with the market? it's just barreling ahead and you know at the same time we're hearing about unemployment how do the two even come close to matching up in any sane kind of way when you have in the US 40 million unemployed like how does that translate into into you know investors looking at the market and saying let's buy 2023 right it's so funny because what you
2: said is ed, people are asking questions like, what's going on? And that has yeah. been actually the the steady state question as what is going on has continually surprised people's expectations of what should be going on. because if you if you take this back to sort of mid mid-march, yeah. what's going on? If the world is ending to today. What's going on? Why isn't the world ending? right? And yeah. we've had we've had a, a disease a virus cause a shock, a global shutdown, probably an economic event that is probably the largest economic event of our lifetime. That causes a demand shock that ripples through economies. And that aggregate demand evisceration also is being complemented by supply line shocks. And so you have this imbalance in aggregate demand and aggregate supply causing unemployment. Then you have massive Coordinated central bank action on a monetary side, as well as fiscal bank, uh, fiscal government actions uh, on the fiscal side, government actions on the fiscal side, to try and fill that hole, right? And then the consequence of that hole is 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 more debt, and we already had a debt problem, and we already had slowing growth going into this particular pandemic, and so you're trying to model a really complex adaptive system that is going to have uh, some consequences from aggregate demand, sort of global economic shutdown. It's going to have things that happen because of all this fiscal stimulus. And you're trying to balance off which is going to win and over what time frame might that win. So in the short term, you have fiscal stimulus and central bank stimulus that fills the hole, the gap, but that long-term debt is not a creative. Thus, it becomes a claim on future growth and future earnings and future GDP earnings. And thus, longer term, you have this sort of maybe potentially deflationary overhang and so the central banks have gone and said we will do anything required which then begs the question of well if anything is required what happened and how bad could that be and could you know monetary policy actually overcome that so on top of that you have massive uncertainty when's the virus going to end will it end what are the what are the consequences and and the iterations of it you know we're coming into the the non-flu season so you're coming into the spring summer season is it a coincidence that the viral load is lower and that the infection uh rates are are less you know sort of deleterious to the human body or is it because we're in a you know a higher more sunshine more outdoors more vitamin d environment we really don't you know there's a lot of that yeah that's i don't unknown. know
1: It's like, uh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. What what Mike has alluded to is all the major issues that are all competing for a voice and and who's going to win out. How's the market going to react? But your initial question was, what are clients asking about? What are they saying? And the answer is all of those things. Right. So there is no one voice that's saying. Hey, the markets are terrible, get me out. There's a number of clients that are like, "We got to get back in. The market's going to zoom." There's a number of clients saying that this is going to be worse than the Great Depression. Everybody talks about the shapes, right? The uh U recovery, yeah. the L recovery, yeah, all U the different recovers, letters, you know. One one individual told me about the the Harry Potter recovery, you know, the lightning bolt um, down.
0: Okay, yeah, right, right, yeah.
1: There's so many yeah. there's so many recoveries. And the key thing that we like to highlight, this is kind of in our MO, and we had discussions internally about this, very strong opinions, very strong-minded partners within Resolve that all had different outcomes that they leaned toward, right? And what the conclusion that we always come to is that preparation here is key. This is what we communicate to advisor clients, to individual retail clients, to institutional clients. When there is maximum uncertainty, the first default should be do no harm, right? If we really don't have an edge, if we really don't know, then you want to make sure that you're balanced across the different possible outcomes. And I know we've been on your podcast before we talked about uh, balance through global diversification, but you know, this is one of the key things. And we knew upfront, if you had told me there was going to be a COVID virus uh, that was going to affect it globally, we could have told you upfront that the likely outcome would be Sovereign bonds up, gold up, everything else down. Right? Yeah. It's it's, it's the structural reality behind asset classes, and so preparation is the, the the most important thing. Do people have preparation in their portfolios? Do they have gold and sovereign bonds, German bonds, UK gilts, Treasury, U.S. Treasuries, Canadian government bonds in their portfolios in the right size in order to to, to mitigate some of these big shocks, and. If, it, if it's not that, let's say it's uh, the government hyperextends itself and prints way too much money, right? Do they have commodities in their portfolios already? Not, not trying to predict because this is the tough part right now, right? But rather have it just in case it's hyperinflationary. Or if it's growth, maybe we solve all the problems. Vaccine comes out, everybody goes out to work and we have a massive growth. Do you have equities? Everybody has equities. So that one I'm not too worried about. I'm mostly worried. We are mostly worried about the rest. So you start with this idea of when clients come to you with all these differing opinions, what do you have to, to offer them? And the first thing is, look, enough arrows in our quiver to deal with all of it. Diversification,
0: I mean, in a word, but not the way that most people imagine diversification or the way you imagine it, I think. It's, yeah. no, just curious, Pierre, What is what do you hear when people think of diversification? 60% in equities, 40% in bonds, or vice versa. 40% equities, 60% in bonds. 100 stocks. Yeah. In, 80% of them in Canadian Well, that's that's the tradition, right? That's the industry's tradition is the 60-40. How many investors have alternatives in their portfolio? How many investors have, as we talked about in the past, how many investors have CTAs or things that are truly, that have truly underperformed over the last decade in order to prepare for the coming decades?
2: It's the behavioral, it's the natural compounding of the behavioral bias of you've got your home country bias, you've got your recency bias, you've got your overconfidence bias, you know, you've got all of these biases combined to to give you the portfolio that's rewarded you the most over the most recent period of time. And then the reinforcement mechanisms that you do more of that and less of other things, which put you at a very precarious position when the regime finally shifts.
0: You guys are almost taking like a, a medical approach based on the way, Rodrigo. You know, you said do no harm first, do no harm as the medical professionals though. But unfortunately, you know, the way medications are prescribed often do more harm than good. And it would be nice if doctors took the same approach as you're proposing. It'd be nice if the industry in general took a more holistic approach to investment as well, in terms of owning or investing in things that are going to provide the ballast during equity downturns.
1: But we have this uh, problem, this issue with our business is that we are, we think we're paid to predict the future, to give advice, to tell them what's going to happen next, right? That's not the case for everybody, but a lot of it has to do with research reports and analyst reports and where do we think the market goes from here and so on. And I kind of think we need to reframe all of Right. Uh, the, the, if we do take the Hippocratic Oath from, a, from an investment perspective, th- that is the one piece of advice that we need to start with. And then we can start layering on a little bit of hubris, right? A little bit of predict- <laughs> uh, prediction. But if somebody comes to you when the markets are five times more volatile than they were for the last 10 years, right? And are telling you, where's the opportunity or where's the downside? Should I buy? Should I sell? The first response should be, we should actually just back away and and diversify. I mean, hopefully with the people that follow us and know our things, and if you've been listening to the the concept of risk parity and balance, you are already there. It, it, this wasn't a big event. You know, the risk parity strategies had a 9%, 9%, 10% drawdown. And, you know, it's it's kind of a non-event.
0: And how many people are in risk parity? I mean, like, what percentage? Not, not, same amount not of everybody. people that
1: are in, in uh, managed futures and the same amount of people that, that have tail protection.
0: Uh, most investors want to buy the winners, right? They want to buy what's winning. They want to buy technology they want to buy perhaps healthcare what we've
1: been advocating for years is that you need to start with with a little more humility to the investment process and then start tilting towards a little bit of hubris
0: you know what i hear in our conversation is that most people just spend all of their time reacting right like okay the stock market's down 35 percent. what do i do now what if i what if it keeps on going down and then you know that's when investors capitulate and they ditch their stocks some or all and getting back in is going to be a nightmare. It's a minefield, really, of mistakes. Right? You're too late, or or you're or you just never get back in. And so, investors I think who don't didn't have time to react or didn't react to this year's drawdown, they're doing wonderfully. Uh, like they're happy that they didn't jump out of the market. But those who were watching every day, who who were watching CNBC or Bloomberg or whatever, and reacting to what they were hearing, the whole world's going to hell. They got out. So in a way, the ones who benefit are the ones who aren't paying attention, and the ones who. Right?
2: Yeah, I, I would. I would add two words to yeah. the end of that. So yeah. far.
0: Yeah. Exactly.
1: You
2: know, th- this game is long, and like the road is long. So. And uh, there's going to be lots of edge so, so,
0: I, I, I just wanted to continue on what Rodrigo, what what you both been saying, which is that investment planning is about doing a lot of things that we don't necessarily care to do, like exercising for health's sake. Or eating well, eating real food as opposed to eating a lot of processed food, uh, investors are always looking for fast solutions to their investment problems. And they're rarely looking at what the long term solutions are in terms of providing that smoother ride as opposed to, you know, jarring volatility.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it, investors are humans. Humans want explainability and they want predictability. And the challenge is that financial markets live on the edge between order, i.e. predictability, and chaos. And they have moments of chaos interspersed in the regularity enough such that it disturbs the equilibrium enough where there's opportunities for people to make mistakes and for people to add excess value through others' mistakes. And that's part of the challenge of dealing in an environment that is dominated by power laws. You know the market movements are not a function of normal distributions, and this is where you get into. Well, how, how might you how might you attenuate that? So, what are the decisions you would make? So, so step one would be, as Rodrigo was alluding to, what's my know nothing portfolio? What's the portfolio I would hold if I had no edge? I had no ability to make any kind of prediction about the future. What would that portfolio be? For us, it's risk parity and, and just because it's maximally diversified. So whilst you're taking advantage of harvesting all the risk premia that's out there, you also get all of the negative correlation through the risk premia and you balance that off so that you know the, the maniacs aren't running the asylum. So you get equal risk contribution from the various areas and regimes. That's, that's one way to think about it. It's not the only mm-hmm. way to think about it but there's your, there's your no bet portfolio. I don't know anything. So I would hold this portfolio. Now I want to overlay as, as Rodrigo said, I want to inject some hubris. Well, you know, I want to, I want to employ some tactics that have a long history of proving out excess risk premia over the normal risk premia that might come, let's say the equity risk premia, you know, so I'm going to add some trend or momentum carry and so I'm going to get a little bit of an excess return. But before you do that, before you jump into the, into the tactics part, you really need to have a clear vision of what your no bet portfolio is. I think that's a that's a step that most people yeah. skip, and it it's akin to you know a lot of people in this in this pandemic have been doing puzzles. Puzzles have become popular again, and so they dump the pieces of the puzzle on the table, and a lot of people start looking for the edges and the corners. Well, that's okay, but you probably want to stand the cover, the box, the picture up on the end of the table where you're where you're building this puzzle so you have a good look at what the end vision is. Then you start to find the edges and the corners and put the puzzle together. But without the picture on the front of the box, you're really foregoing a rather large uh, potential opportunity for information. So start with your know-nothing portfolio. Here's what I would own. You know, why do you extend duration? You expect to get higher returns from locking up your money for longer, why would you take the step from having safe money to having variability in your year-to-year returns? You would do that because you get an equity risk premium or a premium above and beyond that risk-free rate. Uh, by the way, I think one of the things that has you know, come as ex- accepted is that the equity risk premium occurs like some sort of GIC investment, which is not true. There are uh, 10 to 15-year periods where the equity risk premium is negative. And many of them in history, and and we've come to this sort of I call it maximum equity risk premium, where there's this maximum confidence in that the equity risk premium of whatever f- four to six percent above the fixed r- the fixed rate is like it's like accepted like as if it's going to come in like a dividend yield on a quarterly yeah. basis.
1: What people don't understand, or or maybe they do understand, and then just can't hold on to that understanding long enough to to benefit from it is that. By choosing an asset class, whether you're a 100% bond portfolio investor that in your retirement or 100% equity investor when you're young, is that 100% one or the other both lead to left fat tails in your distribution, right? So everybody knows about the distribution the fact that the the four standard deviation events that should happen once every 10,000 years actually happen once every 10 years. Well, individually they do, but it turns out when you combine... The right amount of bonds the right amount of equities and the right amount of of commodities that fat tail gets way down you don't see a lot of you don't see four standard deviation events almost and you see a very small grouping of
0: three standard deviation negative events rodrigo i think it would be helpful actually if just for a moment for those of us who don't fully understand what a left fat tail event is if you just took a moment just to explain it it really is.
1: If maybe people have heard about the the example of, of the black swan, yeah. right? This is Nassim Taleb's concept of, you know, what we're used to seeing when we think about swans are white swans, right? And it is a very rare event that you see a black swan thing. It is it is extremely rare, right? So when we think about the bell curve in in school, remember everybody's yeah. trying to the bell curve is basically saying how many students have scored on average and and everybody hugs that average right you see kind of the tip of the bell and there's a few fantastic outlier students on the right and there's a few fantastic outliers on the left but they are very few on both sides and this is what is known as a a normal distribution is what we would expect to be equal on both ends we in the market actually don't observe a normal distribution the market acts a lot like a normal distribution for a long period of time and then every five to 10 years, we see a massive blow up in volatility and a massive blow up to the downside in equities, right? 50, 40% drawdowns. For, in between those 10 year periods, you see a lot of 10 to 15% drawdowns, right? Perfectly normal in a normal distribution. But then all of a sudden you have these massive events that create uh, really three, three deviations away from the average to, to the negative right. side that shouldn't, you know, doesn't feel like it should happen, but they they happen. And what that does from your reti- from a retirement perspective, is it completely decimates it, right? It completely decimates it. The, the example that Nassim uses is the idea of a turkey, right? A turkey is fed every single day by its mm-hmm. owner, and as the turkey, the smartest turkey starts to tally up the amount of days that this owner of theirs is feeding them, and every day that passes by they feel with more statistical significance that the owner cares about them more and more of course this (laughs) happened up until the day before thanksgiving when whack you get your head chopped off right the problem with markets is that they lure you in they lure you in, they lure you in or any market Mm -hmm. by the way i just i don't want to pinpoint one market it could be the bond market it could be the gold market it could be the equity market the interesting thing is that this you know thanksgiving for equities It happens at a different Thanksgiving for gold and happens at a different Thanksgiving date for bonds. They all blow up, they all get their head chopped off, but it happens at a different date and time. And so the goal is to understand that, understand how it could be absolutely detrimental to your savings to have a 40, 50% drawdown that takes six years to recover and how important it is to have all of those arrows in your quiver so that you can you can withstand these losses. And when you put these things together, all of a sudden, those really negative events don't happen, right? So risk parity through 08, a very naive risk parity, lost 20%. A 60-40 portfolio lost 37%. S&P 500 lost 55%, right? So you need the balance. You need to have, and a 20% is, you know, you need to make 30% to break back to even. When you lose 50%, you have to make 100% to break back even. So it's crucial to understand that the do no harm portfolio, it needs to be done up upfront. Right, yeah. The problem today is that people were asking the question, what do we do now in March 24th, after a 30%, 35% in Canada, almost 40% drawdown. And at that point, you can't say find balance after you've lost that, right?
0: At that point, you have to say, well, you know, hopefully... You, the- you can react and you can rebalance, but how many investors are going to go for that on that day where you say, you know what, all that's left to do right now is take some of that bond money and put it in equities. And then you're saying, I made some money my bonds. I lost 40% in equities. No way. Here's the beautiful thing
1: about what just happened is that there was a much tougher conversation I have on March 24th. As of like today, I think the NASDAQ is is a break, It's like almost reaching its old highs. Yeah. People have a mulligan today, right? The horse was out of the barn for a while. Now it's back in the barn. And we can now teach people and nudge people
0: to toward preparation. Don't don't waste your <laughs> mulligan. <laughs> no, you pay good money for that mulligan. I love that. I love that mulligan. I mean, it wasn't the pandemic the fat tail event? I mean, it was totally unexpected. It was unforeseen. There was warnings, but obviously in the months uh, leading up to it, the Fed won't allow it. I mean, it's it's the Fed. The Fed with the massive stimulus the Fed put. The Fed won't allow investors to have come to live by that and adopt that as as what the future is going to be from now on and and where something's going to happen and to the economy or to the market and if the bond market's going to seize but it doesn't matter because the Fed will be there and and that's the problem isn't it hasn't that infected the psyche of investors so the moral yeah. hazard
2: so there's there's a couple of different moral hazards actually there's also the moral hazard that comes with a central bank who <laughs> regulates all banks centrally Their moral hazard is that each time they're emboldened to do more and more and expected to do more and more, we secede more and more power to them. And thus they become more and more powerful. So it's not only moral hazard from the standpoint of speculators in the market, understanding that maybe there's a Fed put, but there's a moral hazard at the central bank level from a monetarist perspective of each time they do it, they seize more and more control and the system relies more and more on them rather than. Uh, diverse outside influences for decisions, and this starts to create the opportunity for more centralized planning, right. less entrepreneurialism. So there's there's a lot of things that that get put to work here. Some of the way I think about that is there's there's also the the when right. So why was it February March that the pandemic was perceived as being relevant? And not before then, because there were some warnings. It wasn't like it was totally hidden. In the great financial crisis, there were several moments prior to <coughs> August where you could have had a collapse. I mean, you know, the Bear Stearns restructuring in, I think that was in sort of yeah. March, didn't cause the, the pile of sand. Here we enter into sort of chaos theory. So you have a level of instability, but you're not sure of what the event is that creates the cascading events that cause the problem. And so that's where it's not really explainable. So in retrospect, we're going to create a narrative that makes it seem as though it was a linear relationship between these stories of things that occurred that of course led to the great financial crisis or of course led to the pandemic being the thing that caused the collapse and the unstable event to have a cascading event and then be able to be restabilized. You just have to be careful there. I'm not saying your narrative is wrong or right. I'm just saying our human proclivity is that we're going to create a really good narrative to explain what happened even though really we don't know what actually yeah. happened what and, the and
1: yeah I, I totally agree with that and, and it's one of the one of these things where the narrative is that the fed has saved the world right now right so going back to trying to predict well i, I don't know if anybody's ever examined a bear market before but it doesn't happen in 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 that month yeah right bear markets last a year to two years and you have these massive losses, the Fed comes in, makes sure he's the lender of last resort, provides liquidity, markets rebound on that euphoria. And then we hit another flow and an ebb and a flow and an ebb. The idea of being able to have another, a second opportunity to be diversified in what we know to be bear markets that last a long time and that are sequential in their bulls and their bears and their bear market rallies, is absolutely key here, and what'll happen over the next couple of weeks if we do, if we have hit a top and start going down, is that the Fed didn't have enough bullets, that there wasn't a coordinate, enough coordination, that there's this nationalism in, that that has been been bred by Trump and all the other nationalists that is that is separating world powers and not allowing for proper coordination, and and now that'll become the dominant narrative, yeah. right? That it was. That's an issue. The whole point of this is, what can you do that is that is sustainable, where you don't have to put these massive bets in your portfolio? And the first one we talked about was balance, right? But then the other is understanding all these human traits, right? A lot of what you've already discussed in terms of individuals being, making the wrong decisions at the wrong time, these are behavioral yeah. flaws that, are, that we see over and over again and are repetitive, right? This is known in the world of quantitative investing as trend following or momentum. People yep. tend to herd things that have recently gone down will continue to go down for a period. Things that have recently gone up will continue to go up for a period. Now, this is a thing that, that has worked for, we have research going back 600 years, right? So humans will be humans. The question is whether you can now move away from your do no harm portfolio and start moving towards a little bit of prediction. using these factors. And momentum and trend are just a couple. From the macro perspective, you can use mean reversion, seasonality, carry, all these different factors that now you can start tilting toward. And and of course, we also did an analysis on which one of these factors does best in these type of bear markets. We all had very strong opinions, right? Mike (laughs) pointed out in our early discussions that carry seems to be very pro-cyclical. And so, you know, we might think about looking into the data and seeing if there's, you know, anything that, that maybe there's a way to follow, follow use trend within carry or so on. And we found out that, and, and the thought from my perspective was that trend was probably going to be the best. And it turns out that carry was the best performer, right? I think uh, mean reversion was second, then, then trend was third. And then when you examine all the other bear markets in history, you find that these different tilts, these factor tilts on the macro side are completely different. Yeah. Right. The common narrative on, on the equity factor, the value factor, choosing yeah. uh, equities, was that this is a time to shine. Everybody wanted to double down on value at the bottom here because value has done really, really well from the bottoms, right? You're, you're basically grabbing all the junk that nobody wants. Well, it turns out in this recovery, it's been the worst performer, right? So it really is tough to tell which active tilt is going to do better. And we go, if we don't know which one's going to do better, We what do we do? What can we tell our clients? What can we tell our advisor clients? Well, once again, you want to diversify across strategies, right? So yeah. We go back I, to do no harm. I, I so don't know.
2: just diversify across assets and strategies and whatnot. And that the, the challenge with looking at the bear markets and seeing what happened is that you have a very small handful of events from which you're going to make likely very spurious conclusions. Yeah.
0: So something... Something really wise that I read, and it's credit to Josh Brown. W- what I read that was really wise was: let's accept that we can't make sense of the economy versus the stock market. They're not really—I mean, it's hard to find a relationship. So let's let's stop trying. There's there's
2: lots of noise that shrouds that relationship. But
0: what I mean is let's let's stop let's stop spending so much time trying to make sense of that relationship and do more of what we're actually talking about here. I think. I think it works both ways. You can't foresee, you, know, you can't foresee what the fat tails are going to be. Um,
2: Here's, I think, where you need to, that investors need to understand. One of those ways in which you might do that or consider that is behavioral. Right, it is behavioral. Like what we talked about earlier, you you won't want to rebalance when your bonds are up and your stocks yeah, are down.
0: That's actually the biggest risk there is. I mean, forget about what the unknowns are. The Howard Marks letter on uncertainty really sort of opened my eyes as well i don't know if you've seen it but i mean there was this laundry list of 26 questions just uh about all of the unknown factors about the coronavirus never mind the market you know i don't want to go crazy on this but but just the fact that there was these 26 questions that have yet to be answered just proved the point that uncertainty is something we just have to get used to well it's always here that's just it You, you can't be certain about anything
2: so this is exactly what I'm yeah. referring to when I talk about markets walking the line between order and disorder, sort of predictability and chaos. They must walk that line enough to keep everybody on edge so that it provides the edge for others to achieve. There, there are winners and there are losers. This is exactly the scope with which you view the problem. So then the point isn't to feel hopeless. The point isn't to feel there's, there's no opportunity for, to address this. There are opportunities to address it, which we've talked about diversity, right? Diversity of the structural. There are, we believe there are structural relationships between the economy and asset prices. And that's what that big market target is about and talks about inflationary and growth type shocks. And those changes in those areas cause structural price movements in asset prices. So we had a demand shock. We had a pandemic, both long-term government bonds and gold did exceptionally well in that. They fulfilled their role in that and equities did particularly poorly. You had something killing it and you had something killing you. You had to hold them in the right amount of balance so that the portfolio could achieve the long-term risk premium. If you did that through March, you had a 10% drawdown in your risk parity portfolio. That's a non-issue. That is those tails cancelling each other out and that's a max drawdown to the day so that was in the liquidity moment of I think it was March 24th where we had a liquidity shock where those that were trying to exit markets were in such numbers that the system wasn't quite balancing off even bonds where you'd expect them to have been up a lot the -the off-the-run bonds weren't quite you know government bonds weren't quite (coughs) participating in price that was a day I was, yeah, it was so
1: a day it was two days, maybe two in days, the same week and separate. But it was yeah, it was those two things. The rest of the time, that risk parity approach was steady, it and it, it's never designed to not to have. It's not it's not an absolute return strategy. Yeah. Right, it's not designed to make you money yeah. across everything. It's designed to, to try to eliminate the four standard deviation events and minimize the three standard deviation events. And so, if a ten percent correction is par for the course for any strategy and and the key is and not if you're a retiree and you have to withdraw during that period that you're not withdrawing when your portfolio just went down 45 percent because you're reaching for yield right how many high yield funds blew up this this time around and everybody who needs the money has been reaching for yield has been a hundred percent of the portfolio in them, and they needed to take out their monthly allowance you know, that, that is detrimental to retirement so the key here is again yeah. Understanding from a from a economic dynamic perspective, the the growth and inflation dynamics, and in which asset classes thrive in those dynamics, and then understanding that those behavioral flaws that we identified, the trend, the carry, all of those are really tough to extract because people think, oh, momentum is a thing, and therefore I'm going to win every year. Turns out the momentum, every bet that you make on momentum, every trade that you have, you're only right around 51, 52 percent of the time. Yeah. It almost feels like a coin toss. And so the if it were better than that, then it would be arbed out. It seems to be this like 51, 52% mark where enough people give up that you're able to harvest that excess return over time. Right. Yeah. And the key is in being disciplined about it. And then the key is in like, look, momentum blows up. Momentum yeah. hits uh, tails, which is a bad outcome, 10 times in a row sometimes does carry have 10 uh, that does have the same outcome as momentum at the same time? No, they all blow up at different times, right? And if you want to be able to stick to that long term premium, and by the way, we're talking about, you know, factors, but we could be talking about any strategy that you as an advisor looked into and liked and understood. And you have to understand that one of your managers will blow up at a certain time. Hopefully the process is diversified enough so that you can withstand that and stick to it. That's the key part here, right? All of this is not about trying to predict where the market goes from here. It's about re-emphasizing how important it is to have a plan upfront, and and asset allocation strategy allocation, and and then you know communication process for clients. And 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 if yeah. you're an individual, your investment policy statement that you should be doing for yourself if your advisor isn't doing it for you,
0: and sticking to it. That's the point of communications. All those
1: things that's, will help you stick that's to That's the right? behavior. All, all yeah. those things should help you yeah. stick to it. Uh, you, we just have to cut that tether to the domestic market that people seem to think is important. It's not. It's not important. You're, and you're, this, this is the challenge. This is a behavioral, behavioral challenge. Not who, who are your neighbors? <laughs> your neighbors
2: in Houston are different than your neighbors in San Francisco or you know Calgary, Alberta versus Toronto. And so you have you have a different tracking error portfolio that you, your your envy club is forcing you to keep up to, right? So you can imagine you have this fully diversified, beautiful portfolio that's been ticking along at 6% a year. And you, you see you're kind of happy with it until you talk to your buddy who's in the NASDAQ and he's in the 60-40 US and he shows you all the research that says, well, the US is the largest economy in the world. It's the only stock market you need because it's globally diversified. And capitalism is the centerpiece there and will always be the centerpiece there. And thus you should just, you know, invest in the United States. Doesn't that make sense? And, you know, the answer there is th- there's a lot of holes in that philosophy. But now you're under pressure. Your, your beliefs are being attacked and, and they're just showing you performance and saying, look, here it is. You know, I- I'm better than you. And so there's there's so many behavioral vulnerabilities that 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 you you need to be aware of that you need, you need to understand at a deep level so that you can overcome that envy and greed aspect of trying to keep up with your neighbors. And this is this is really. Yeah.
0: What's your strategy for getting your clients to think like Rip Van Winkle?
2: Yeah, we like to say we want to be in the Hall of Fame for realized risk-adjusted returns. So. We want to give you good risk-adjusted returns, but we want you to realize them. If you don't realize them, they're, they're of no use to you and they're of no use to us. So we like to partner with people who have the ability to read and understand our communications, have are willing to do some work. Because if you if you're not willing to do some work to understand it, then you're just giving me some sort of blind faith or trust. And inevitably, a new guru is going to come along that's shinier and better. Rather, I'd rather, you know, we'll provide lots of information. We've talked about a lot of things on this podcast. We're we're active in in digital media regularly because we want to make sure that you both can understand. You have the opportunity to understand and learn and and understand why these prime drivers, these prime values are so important to long term success in the short term. The six like you, you don't know, one month returns are totally random. In the long-term, 10-year type returns, that's where you have the opportunity to garner excess return. And most people don't ever look at their returns and say, well, how much risk did I take? They don't say, oh, I've I've had, you know, the return on, for the last 20 years, for example, for long-term investors, the return on gold is better than the return on the S&P 500. Yeah. Not too many people know that. Well, that's because the return in the last 10 years, since 2012 when gold peaked to today, are zero. And for the U.S. equity market, they're extraordinary, and so it's the framing. It's the it's so so they 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 just don't quite put those things together. So you you want to be able to communicate those things to them, understanding that there's always going to be something killing it, always something going to be killing you. But in order to be prepared, you need to have both because when the shock comes, no one rings a bell.
1: No, and I, I just want to emphasize how important it is for those advisors listening that half the battle if not more is self-selection right who are your clients how did you filter your clients so that they will make your business thrive and and the truth is that you know going out there and trying to convince people from scratch to do it your way will inevitably lead to failure what there was we went to a content marketing event like how long ago seven years ago mike Mm-hmm. Where, I we went to this. This uh, speaker was talking about the silos between marketing and sales. He was he, he used to be a pool salesman, He used to sell pools, and he would meet anybody and everybody who would want to buy a pool and spend his whole day running around the city doing it. And he would have twenty percent of that stick actually become right. clients. And then he started doing marketing and content marketing. He started putting shores up he he would he decided at one point that he wasn't going to talk to anybody until they read his booklet right his full booklet as to what it is and when he started doing that then the vast majority of people didn't speak to them he didn't waste his time he continued to put out good content and good education by the time they he allowed the prospective client to contact them 80 percent of them would become clients right right and they were the right clients that understood what he was offering. And so I think the, the, the interesting part for us is you asked us how many people were losing their minds. I mean, you didn't say that, but how many advisors and, and, and clients were calling us? You know, there were opinions, but nobody was freaking out. Everybody was on board. We had net inflows in in our funds throughout this period. And we had the same thing in 2018, yeah. in October 2018, when we had a bad drawdown. It was It was just a testament to finding the right clients and then constant education. Right, So that's how you do it. It's not easy. And it means that you have to grow slower often in the beginning, especially because it does mean you're going to get less clients. But then you don't have those difficult clients, right?
0: Yeah. Amazing. I think it, it has. Correct me if I'm wrong. I think, first of all, I think risk parity is a subject or a term. It's a subject that's little understood. It sounds very technical. I think people get scared off by it because they think it's like a hedge fund. And then, of course, the relationship there's the association to hedge funds which is that it's risky and then what you get is a shut off so they look at risk parity before and then they look at risk parity performance if they even get that far and they see it has underperformed the indexes so right so then there's also potentially a shut off but I was really piqued by our last podcast where I actually learned something about capital efficiency and that That term is also very technical. It sounds very, you know, it has all, all these terms have a mathematical element that is a little off-putting for, I think, for most people, potentially, because it becomes almost a scientific uh, tilt in terms of trying to wrap your head around how things should be done. I think when it comes to money, people are a bit reluctant. Advisors and investors are like, are reluctant to give up what they think is control. And that is fleeting. What actually are you controlling? Nothing. You don't control the stock market. You don't control the bond market. All you control is your decisions. The thing that I think goes hand in hand with risk parity is capital efficiency.
1: I think Canadians will resonate more with with the idea of the Harry Brown permanent portfolio. I think maybe not everybody has heard that, but a lot of advisors have heard it. It's the idea, it's just that concept of, look, you need to have things that zig when other things right, act okay. based on different economic realities that we've seen over, over hundreds and hundreds of years. And so the, or the original, like the naive, naive way of looking at this is four things. You buy, you have 25% of your money in cash, 25% of your money in gold, 25 in sovereign right. bonds. And 25% in equities or, you know, bond, uh, corporate bonds and equities, right? And so the bonds and equities will thrive in a growth environment. The sovereign bonds will grow at a lower rate, but will thrive in a bear market, in a deflationary uh, environment like we've seen recently. Gold will thrive in inflation and cash will be there to, you know, protect against inflation as well, because it can actually... You do it does okay. a pretty good job and it also has some money that you can use to rebalance when equities have been cut in half, right? That is the first attempt. The problem with that approach is that you are, you're assuming that the volatility of each one of those quadrants is the same. Mm-hmm. But what happens if actual equities is five times more volatile than your bonds, right? What you'll find is that in that bear market, bonds will make money. But, Equities will lose five times more, and this is what we see in the sixty forty portfolio. Right. This, this so-called balanced portfolio, in OA was down thirty seven percent. Is that balanced to you? Was it? Wouldn't balance be a, a closer to the zero mark of not having lost money?
0: So that's interesting when you put it that way. I don't think people think of a balanced portfolio that way. You know, they still see a balanced portfolio as being perfectly. It's perfectly as though it's perfectly acceptable to be unbalanced that's a completely unbalanced portfolio.
1: When you look at, when you put your risk parity goggles on and there's a mathematical calculation and that calculation, I'm gonna call them risk parity goggles, okay? Just trust me on it, that it exists, but it can measure how much risk is contributed to a portfolio per asset class. And when you look at the 60, 40 portfolio, people think that it's 60% equities, 40% bonds. But when you put your goggles on, you measure risk contribution. It turns out that on average, you have 90% of the risk coming from equities and 10% of the risk coming from bonds. What does that mean in a practical basis? Well, if I invest in that portfolio over the next 10 days and over the next 10 days, equities lose money for 10 days and bonds make money for 10 days, your 60-40 portfolio will be dominated by equities and will lose nine out of those 10 days. So the direction is being pulled by the more volatile side of the portfolio, okay? Now let's grab that sixty forty and create a risk parity portfolio. What that would look like is you'd have most of your money in bonds, something like eighty percent in bonds, twenty percent in equities. And in that same ten-day period, you'll find that five times that uh, five out of those ten will it'll be random. It'll be perfectly kind of flat, right? There won't be one, any days being dominated by equities versus bonds. That means though that you're going to have. A higher weighting towards bonds than equities, and people see that and say, "I want none of that. I, I need. I have a retirement to think of. Sure. I want to have wow. the highest rate of return I possibly can." And so, what we've accomplished by creating better balance is we've we've actually reduced those left nasty tails, right? We've reduced those three, four standard deviation events because now we're in we're truly in balance. S&P 500 drops fifty percent; your bonds should be able to make up most of that, which is what we've seen this right. year. And so you're not—it's not a detriment to your retirement portfolio if you need to withdraw. But you, so what have you created? For every unit of risk that you take, you've increased the, the unit of return. Your sharp ratio is also known. Whereas a 60/40 portfolio tends to have a lower sharp ratio than a, uh, a fixed income portfolio. But because it's dominated by equities, your absolute return because you're dominated by this volatility, your long-term expected risk premium is going to is expected to be higher from a 60/40 portfolio so you have more balance and more stable outcomes for 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 risk parity but better absolute returns from equities even though you're going to have to suffer these 37 right. drawdowns anything c40 so how do you fix that well the next this is where we get to capital efficiency by the way i'm talking about bonds and equities but risk parity also includes the inflation the gold and the commodities in balance in risk balance right so what you need to do now is you need to say okay well what if i can provide very very cheap leverage and i th- what you have in your risk parity portfolio is you know half the volatility of your sixty forty portfolio what if i lever up the portfolio pro rata until i match the volatility of my sixty forty or whatever risk profile you want and it turns out that for every if, if for every unit let's say that your, your 60 40 portfolio has a volatility of 10 and for every 10 units of risk that you take, the 6040 portfolio gives you five units of return. So you're getting 5% annualized rate of return in 6040, which has been kind of mm-hmm. in line for a global balance portfolio. And let's say the risk parity portfolio gives you uh, 7, a point seven sharp, meaning for 10 units of risk, if I can lever it up so I can hit 10% volatility, I am now getting seven units of return, not five. Right? right? This is... Leverage is what's called capital efficiency, is the the, the ability to use leverage in order to, to increase your returns, assuming a certain type of return and risk profile. And it's, it seems very complex, but the three things are balance through asset allocation, making sure the maniacs aren't taking over the asylum, and then match the expected volatility of that portfolio to your risk parameters by using a little bit of leverage. Or if you're super conservative, then in fact, add cash. Yeah. This is the Nobel Prize winning theorem of the capital market line. Right. Right. It's the efficient frontier with the tangency of the capital market line. Instead of buying more equities, which is what we all do, we actually use leverage or cash in order to hit a volatility profile, keep your sharp ratio, and get better returns. It is Nobel Prize winning, but lo and behold, there is this behavioral flaw that we are also able to capture by doing this called uh, an aversion to to right. leverage. Right. And so for those who can and are willing to. You can get an excess risk premium by using leverage thoughtfully, and so that's that's risk parity in a nutshell. Anything you would add, Mike? That I that I may have.
2: No, that, that's capital efficiency as well. It's the same. It's yeah. It's maximizing the diversification to get better risk-adjusted returns, and and this is the the thing that's often missing when investors compare their returns over various historical right. timelines. They say, "Well, I made this return. Well, what, what risk did you take?" Oh, I, don't, I, I stuck with it, so the risk wasn't too much for me to handle, which is great. But we don't really know how many 20, 30, 40, 50% drawdowns that they encountered in order to get that return. Not too many people talk about the fact that Amazon had uh, three 90% drawdowns in order to get yep. where it is today. So you had to hold through three 90% drawdowns, which means it had to come back 1,000% already for you to break even. And, uh, you know, not not everything that goes down 90% comes back. And most of it doesn't. Perfect the funny, workout. the funny thing is, the best performing stock is Domino's yeah. Pizza.
1: So there you have it. Yeah. All right. so <laughs> and, and look, this is this goes back to the um, this concept of like wanting to reach and reach for yield, reach for returns, because that's what I need, right? It's funny the cognitive dissonance involved in in most people's, most advisors' minds, most people that I talk to is that you ask them, what do you actually think? the long-term expected returns for a CC40 portfolio are like going like 20, 30 years. What do you think you're going to get? And everybody comes back to is like, well, yields are this and equities are that at most after fees, we're probably looking at three, 4%, right? So they know like everybody says that is a a fact. We all understand it. And then we go through a 10-year period. And by the way, the, you know, the sharp ratio of equities historically is 03 Right. But over the last ten years, the sharp ratio of the SP 500 is 0.8. the sharp ratio of the sixty forty portfolio, because it's US equities. I'm talking about to mostly US investors, treasuries and equities happen to be the best two performing asset classes on the planet, right? So you have a 10 year period where this thing has just blown the lights out. It's in the ninety it was up until recently in the 99th percentile outcome of all historical sharp ratios, right? And so when you contrast that with a risk parity portfolio that owns global equities, global bonds, global currencies, gold, commodities, and real estate, people see that as you mentioned earlier, it's this, they don't they see the underperformance and they don't like it. Well, it's underperformance. It's underperformance that is done four or five percent a year at the non-levered risk parity, which is higher than what they themselves mm-hmm. would expect ten years ago. Cc40 to do. But because of the vagrants of the year to year and this massive dispersion that can happen for long periods of time in a single asset class, everybody has abandoned the idea of diversification. It's a tough thing to do. But all you need is one of these bear markets and maybe this bear market leads back to that 50% drawdown over the next two years as the real economy starts to impact it. But the point is that when you're providing in risk parity, 4%, 5%, 6%, 2%, Negative three percent, positive seven percent, and S and P the sixty forty is providing eighteen percent, fifteen percent, negative five, ten percent, twelve percent. Most years, people feel really good about that portfolio, right? Whereas most years, they're going to feel really poorly about that low single-digit portfolio of a non-levered disparity. So that's another challenge of of investing in diversified products like that. It's that you really need to think about this from the long-term perspective and match. Your expectations of returns, with the actual outcome, and not looking at the the vagaries of your favorite market—that is it. That is, a, that is a, a real
0: problem. So let's get back. Let's go back for a moment, back to the two points. Stop trying to make sense of the economy and the stock market. And secondly, the mulligan. Since we've got this mulligan, the second chance. What do you do now? Like, what is the what is the way forward for the investor who has the mulligan in hand? I know you guys had a discussion the other day in a video about tail risks. You've got your equity money back or most of it and you got a second chance. What do you do?
2: Well, I think first the first is an inward look to yeah. see, you know, what your what your what's your human capital like versus your invested capital. So if you're 25 years of age and you've just started investing, you don't have to do anything you actually hope for actually very poor investment returns out of equities so that you can buy more and more of them for some place down the road in 20 or 30 years where you might start to harness those uh for some kind of income so really on the individual investor side i think that has to be taken into account now let's the reality of that question is that the majority of money is with those who have accumulated, whose human capital is depleted, and whose investment capital is what is, what is going to give them a, an right. income stream over the next 20 years. And so on a, on a money-weighted basis, that's the real question that, that really, I think, needs to be addressed. And to my mind, it's it's making sure that your risk is right for whatever your risk tolerances are based on what your expectancy for taking an income from this portfolio is. So there's a little bit of math behind that, what your return assumptions are, which Rodrigo's uh, touched on. But, but once you get through all of that, you say, okay, what should my portfolio construction look like? You know, what my, what should my asset allocations look like? You'll probably find your return expectations are too high for a, a passive portfolio. And so you might want to skew more to equities now because you're like well the equities have the you know the best long-term return uh expectations mm-hmm. the challenge is they're they're no longer cheap they were cheap for a minute and so you're stuck sitting in the middle again and what if there's another 35 percent drawdown so our thinking would be that you would want to layer on extra risk return premia so you'd want to layer on those factor premium you'd want to make sure that you were considering all the various asset classes that could have positive returns in various regimes to harness those. You want to lay on top of those, those carry factors, vol factors, uh, although the, the extra factor premia, and then probably have several strategies that do that. And the great thing about doing that, if you look at tactical adaptive strategies that are thoughtful, like risk parity with factors. Mm-hmm. So we talked a lot about risk parity, yeah. What we didn't touch on is the fact that you can add a ton of value to risk parity by layering on the factors, by layering on a trend and momentum factor and a carry factor, et cetera. So you add those factors on top of those and the great thing now, you've had this shock. And so most systematic portfolios have actually reduced the risk and exposure because they're doing that capital efficiency Rodrigo talked about. They're making sure the risk is right if if, um, the volatility of assets is tremendous. Your edge is smaller, definitionally your edge is smaller. You don't know which way this thing's gonna go. So you systematically reduce exposures. The nice thing is if you come into those, comp- those, those adaptive processes that are well diversified, you're now coming into a portfolio that is somewhat conservative, but will grow exposures in the appropriate manner to follow on the trends and the carry and the factor to harness all of these things into the future. So you're not sitting in cash, totally uninvested yeah. you're actually sitting in a very balanced portfolio if i think about some of our own portfolios they're very balanced between commodities those non golden gold bonds they have still have some stocks from you know the nasdaq and things things that are working and things that have positive carry things that have seasonality and so you're getting into this portfolio and then as things unfold every day things are going to be monitored and looked at and rebalanced and so as those trends unfold and as the prices realize what's going to happen in central banks and what's going to happen with the virus and those trends sort of manifest you're there every day and your money's putting being put to work every day as the story evolves and the price moves first and then the narrative evolves after that's the way it happens. And so you'd be putting the money money to work real time and then at such time as things are normal and there's a bull market somewhere, let's say it's in gold and certain types of currencies, you've got money there, but then there'll be some sort of disruption in that area. But then you'll be quick to react. Those adaptive strategies will be quick to react and to reduce the, the um, exposures again. So, you know, I have cash. What do I do with it now? Or I've been made whole again. What should I do now? These are some of the things that I would really think hard about. You talked about CTA strategies, we, we have some of those, trend following strategies. These types of things need to be thought about as ways in which to start garnering exposure into the 60-40 because you've been given this mulligan in this passive and, portfolio.
1: Yeah, it just goes back to a previous podcast we did that what do you do now? Uh, it's time to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Yeah, um, it's, it's funny, the, isn't it? The discussion there, yeah. The discussion there was uh, back then when we had that discussion about a year ago, was valuations are low and by the way i mean no, every, bonds are yielding yeah an insanely small amount now we and we know that the, the 10-year correlation to current yield is high so we know what you're going to get for your bond portfolio equities might have gotten in, uh, slightly better but guess what nothing changed from last year the valuations are better outside of u.s and yeah. canada you got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable with, with buying global equities yeah. and global security.
0: Yeah, that was the discussion that we had about Robert Schiller and investing in, in foreign markets. And now
1: we also have at the forefront this looming inflation case, right? This idea that we, what, what if we printed too much money here and the, we have this massive growth and inflation gets away with that from us? Now you got to hold gold and commodities to tips. How many? Not many advisors even own tips. Like you have to think about diversifying to that. So what you do now is you recognize that the, there are many outcomes here, and you, you need to you need to provide some returns. So you need to go global. You need to be able to protect against tail events, not just growth tail, but inflation events. So you need to start allocating to alternative asset classes, and then once you have that built find strategies that are trying to create absolute returns for you, good, bad, or, or ugly times. And those are the kind of the, the, we prefer to talk about, and we can talk about why, but global factors, so asset allocation factors rather than security selection factors are likely to be more sustainable. And then you can get more and more down the line, depending on how sophisticated you want to get and how more uncomfortable you want to get. You want to get to like, you know, day trading type of strategies that have completely different return profiles and so on. There's a whole spectrum of, of improvements you can make the more uncomfortable you're to get, But it, it is time to move away from your traditional. You got a mulligan. It's comfortable to not have to change anything, but you will have to tell your clients, assuming valuations today, that you're going to have to save mm-hmm. more. There's going to be more volatility, and we're going to provide you less return. If you don't want to have that discussion, you need to go out in the in the spectrum, take some more uh, level of discomfort, and per, try to provide some added returns to to the portfolio. That's what people need to do
0: now. Okay, so what do you say to the investor who panicked and got out and doesn't have the mulligan? Mike has a good saying yeah. there.
1: When's the best? What is it? When's the yeah. best time to? <laughs> When's my
2: best time to plant an oak tree? A hundred years ago. When's the next best time? Right now. Again, the person who got it with cash, I think, is has got to think about how do I re-enter this market in a thoughtful and systematic mm-hmm.
0: way. Psychologically, that's easier said than done.
2: Let me give you, let me give you a hard example. All right, let me give you, let me give you a hard example because I think it, it might help to illustrate the point. So, we manage an ETF in uh, in the U.S. and it's based on index and. Um, the index name is, gosh, it's going to
1: escape me now. A newfound Resolve Robust Momentum Index. Okay. So the Newfound Resolve <clears throat>
2: Robust Momentum Index. Robust Equity Momentum Index. Robust Equity Momentum Index wow. is an index for which there is an ETF. And and so let's say, and I, I like this comparison because it, it's strictly an S&P, it's, it's an equity momentum indicator with U.S. Equ- U.S. equities, uh, European equities and emerging equities and bonds and potentially cash. And the way we measure sort of the momentum or trend in those markets is using ensembles. And so you've heard of the 10-month moving average where you get in and out of the 12-month moving average where you're either in or out. So in the 10-month moving average at the end of February, you got out entirely, you sold, and you've been in cash ever since. Now, as we approach the end of May, a very dire seasonal period, that 10 month moving average is on the precipice of getting back in 100%. So that's a big thats a big bet, right? That, that's a big in and out. What our system does is looks at many, many different ways in which you could measure that trend, many types of ways, many different ways to do that. And so it ebbs and flows a little bit in and out. Currently, it's about 90% exposed to bonds and 10% exposed to equities. So I got out at some point in February and March. I don't know, whenever Mm -hmm. that was. And now I'm like, well, I made a mistake. I need to get back in. So rather than trying to time that yourself, use the the newfound resolve, robust equity momentum index, put the money in that. It's 90% equities and and, and, 90% bonds and 10% equities. And then each week, As the ensemble goes through and calculates again whether the trend is stronger, has been sustained for a long period enough in time to allocate more um, assets towards equity, it will allocate them for you on your behalf. Very simple model. This is kind of a one market example.
1: Right? So you have the difference between a a light switch approach, binary on off, which is what a lot of people want to think is the right way to do it versus a dimmer switch approach, which is, okay, I'm going to slowly ease in and out of these things, but it's not just random. Like, I'm not talking about, okay, I'm going to schedule it on a calendar basis. Every week, I'm going to add this much. It's it's a little smarter than that, where you're looking at this herding behavior phenomenon that we call trend. And then understanding that it, the trend is not just the 200-day moving average. It could be the 150-day, 300-day, the 10-month moving average crossing over the two-month, the two-month crossing over the 10-month, the three-month crossing over the 12. All of these work over long periods of time independently. Each one of them is a binary switch. But when you add their votes every time, every week, when you tally up their votes all together, you get a few of them in the short term saying, hey, you should be back in, midterm saying not yet, long term saying not yet. and you're And, and all of these are intelligently giving their votes and their opinions as virtual momentum managers or trend managers saying, hey, I think we should get back in or not. And they intelligently have you in and out, right? So you don't have to have the heart aching decision of having to make a, a binary all in money. You don't even have to think about putting together strategies like this. You can just kind of follow the index and we'll, we'll, we'll provide a link to it. So you guys, because the, the index landing page has a ton of this thought process in there there's a presentation there's a there's you, forget about the index just this applies to everything that you do this ensembles approach this again we talk about it, attacking uh, the investments everything you do in investments from a place of humility this is it this is what we're trying to to explain in this landing page and and it will help you with anything that you do in life anything that you do in investing and if you if you like the equity markets and and just want to play in that space then this is a solid way to allow you to ease back in when uh, when it's appropriate, and you just need to like you know follow the index or or look at the ETF to say okay here you go. I know I'm not 100 percent going in right now. You guys are going to manage it yeah, for me, yeah. or the index is going to tell me when to do it. We publish the weights uh, once a week, and and it'll it'll help everybody out that
2: way. Yeah. But do think- you see you see how that helped that individual. They yeah. got out. Now they don't know what to do. So now we have to we have to figure out a systematic, thoughtful way for them to re-enter. And so that's just one example of a bunch of algorithms that will do it for you better. And and if you look at those algorithms over time and look at them over 20 years, you find they had a tremendous amount of excess return and reduced risk. So you're in this particular predicament. It's at a troubling spot. But now you don't have to make that all in or not choice. You could do something as simple as, well, I'm going to wait one tenth a month for the next 10 months too. I mean, you could do that. The challenge is what if the direction continues down and you were right to get out. The nice thing about finding a an underlying system or or a methodology that's congruent with how you think will help you stick with it. And you know, from our broader systems where we incorporate many 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 more asset classes and their integration with one another, I think those are very optimal as well because what happens in those places is you get you get a shock, you get a change in new leadership and new trends. Those leaderships usually emerge out of the shocked time and they are new. And we're seeing that we're seeing, you know, gold leadership. That's a little bit, you know, different. It it hasn't always been a leader here for the last 10 years, but it's starting to show that. So that's, that's something new that should be incorporated in your portfolio. Are you going to be surveying the landscape to understand that all the time? Are you going to have a thoughtful way to put that in your portfolio all the time, considering its correlation to the other asset classes? And so those are things to, to think about. Every investor is going to have their own choice there. But I think it's it's the person should think about a structured, systematic, thoughtful way to reintroduce that capital to markets, and those are we, couple and again examples. We get back
1: to self educating, self actualizing individuals that want to understand upfront what what the plan is, and then have a system do it for them afterwards, right. where they don't have to get emotionally involved. And that's why we became systematic investors,
0: because we were terrible. Uh, uh, that's the thing with markets though, with investing, with this business, the more time you spend in it, the more you realize how much more there is to learn. The decision-making landscape has really changed, it's changing right now, we're near the end or coming to the end of a 40-year cycle of interest rates dropping. That doesn't make the equity market decision more complicated, assuming you're optimistic about the long term. but. All the other asset categories could either be winners or losers depending on how things go. The most complicated silo is the fixed income silo, the interest rate silo. If you go on assuming that it's a core component of a portfolio, where do you go? Where do you, you, know, where do you position your income producing assets or fixed income assets for the long run given where yields are today on sovereign bonds or government paper? Where do you go for that? Yields are, you know, under 1%. Can you really, from an income standpoint, can you really count on those assets to be there for you in terms of of producing an an income? And the answer, I think, in in most people's minds is no. Not in the traditional sense. You know, maybe in the uh, risk management sense, yes. But it's confusing. It's, It's very difficult. And I think going back to your ETF that you talked about as an example of systematic solution, I think they're really... Is a bright future for those kinds of assets or those kinds of products? And the sad thing is,
1: there 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 should be a bright future. For there those should products be, products and, and it's yeah. open. The problem is that passive investing has won again so far, right? Yeah. Like this like everybody's every active investor has been waiting for a decade for this to happen, so that we so you can see active, you need it active, and here we are again with this mulligan, and nobody's learned their lesson. Yeah. Right. Uh, so you really have to find those true thoughtful investors that have seen this not as as proof of passive, but rather as a a second
0: chance. I think we can at least agree that it's okay, you know, in one way or another, whether you're active or passive, it's easy to make the equity decision, you know, I mean, even that's not easy, but it's easier to make the equity investment decision basically, as it always has been. We never know when markets, you know, when markets, equity markets are going to go down, but in the long run, they go up, right? There's lots of arguments in favor of equity markets continuing to increase in value. And there certainly is one being made right now. But when it comes to all the other asset groups, such as uh, gold, fixed income alternatives, you know, those always seem to be more more of a toss-up. And going forward, there's a perception that bonds, uh, sovereign bonds will be a toss-up in the not-so-distant future. So
1: it, it can be, but but see, this is where again we get to these beliefs, right? That that, for example, when 08 happened and we got down to two percent yield, everybody everybody was convinced that there was going to be hyperinflation. It was it was known. It was like hyperinflation was a thing. Why would you want to own bonds, right? And yet, in any given year, sovereign bonds provided a ton of value and a ton of protection. And it turns out that uh, US treasuries ends up being the second best performing asset class on the planet for that period. So this, this is where we got to move away from. This is where I talk about hubris, right? Okay. So we have low yields and fixed income. I I agree that it's a toss up in a lot of people's Mm -hmm. minds, but let's, we don't even have to make anything up. Like German bunds went to negative territory over the last 10 years, right? Have you seen the returns? Their total returns? They're what happens positive. when yields go down and prices go up? up? I mean they 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 continue yeah. to provide positive returns for investors, right? And so it, we got to at some point you you people think about the yield in in, in a, an asset class rather than the total return of the asset class, okay? That's number 1. And so what if the treasuries because what if we go to negative 2% rates across the board? Yeah. Right? And we have what happens to your, your thesis that bonds are terrible. Well, maybe bonds eventually, (laughs) eventually they will have to catch up. Eventually there will be a a reckoning, but we don't live, you, me, advisors, investors don't live a lot of times in a five year period. We live in a one to three year period or we as those retirees that need to take money out, they need to be able to to have something in their portfolio that makes some money. So what happens if we go through a period of deflation where a negative 2% yield is better than the negative 3% CPI, Yeah, right? You're having a, a real positive yield there right by owning bonds and equities will have lost money and gold will have lost money and the only thing there for you is going to be fixed income but you decided to throw it out the window because your thesis was that low yield equals bad returns right and it's just it's it's really it can really bend your mind once you go to those levels uh, there was a period from 1940 to 1981 uh, sorry 19 yeah 1940 it was a 40 year period 1940 to 1980s where the 10 year treasury lost money for that whole period it had a drawdown of 68 percent in real terms right and so who in their right mind would own uh, risk parity in that approach right Why, why how could you well turns out that when you add that that bond portfolio for those 40 years that lost money to gold and to equities the The equities, the the commodities and the equities more than offset the losses for the fixed income. And the fact that they were not lowly correlated to each other meant that the risk parity portfolio was a lot smoother than just owning equities, just owning commodities and just owning bonds. And if you were okay with the volatility of equities, all you needed to do was lever the risk parity portfolio to equity like volatility and you would have outperformed equities. Right. So once again, this concept that risk parity would have blown up or will blow up if, if bonds do poorly is also not true right it's the uh, you got to think about the ensemble you got to think about the risk adjustment you got to think about the reduction of your tail risk and and if you can use leverage to in order to achieve the risk profile you want you're still better off being diversified than not being diversified And, and we do have to break out of these easy mental models of well yields are low and therefore everything's low if it comes to you easily it's probably wrong you got to think two, three level papers. So, So like stocks
2: garner their earnings from GDP growth. Interest rates are a function of the demand for money in order to deploy projects that would provide positive or creative growth for GDP. If they can't, then they're not done. When you have very low or negative rates, that says more, that has more negative implications for equities than it does for bonds, right? So, so if you have negative rates, that means the demand for money is non-existent, that there, there is no project that can be done to create any kind of future demand or growth right. in GDP. That's what it's saying, deflationary. And thus, it would be unusual to expect equity markets to have some sort of massive growth in earnings so it it's a, it would be a strange thing. It, it could be that massively capitalized stocks are the only thing that could predatorily make money and cannibalize all other small businesses that has some feedback loops on growth that are that don't quite make sense It's possible. Like I mean I can dement the world enough where I could probably come up with it the equity markets but because their their growth and earnings just becomes bigger and bigger part of GDP. And so they grow, but the, the global economy doesn't. That's a bit of a weird scenario. But low rates and negative rates are the demand for money for future projects. When they're that low,
0: that's not, that's not a great sign for equities. <clears throat> uh, no, it's not. I mean, it's a demand. It shows that there's a demand, a willingness to pay for safety. And so, yeah, in terms of the return of capital that you're willing to accept, Uh, You're willing to accept that you get 98 or 99 cents back on your dollar. The Fed's plan and the government's plan is to drive us into risky assets uh, by giving us basically what amounts to an ultimatum. Uh, We're investors contemplating investing in sovereign paper with negative rates. You would only do that if you were willing to pay for the safety net of a government guarantee. What they're doing, their their plan, is to swap out... uh, old bonds uh, for new bonds. And the old bonds have typically a higher coupon rate and uh, they're buying them. They're burying them in the backyard and then they're issuing replacement paper at the lower rates. And that's really what their purchase program is all about. It's about swapping higher interest rates, swapping out paper that pays higher interest rates in return for paper with lower interest rates. And and that too, in itself, is the reason why uh, all of this quantitative easing that we've had for the last uh, 12 years hasn't been hyperinflationary. For investors, though, in the paper, yeah, you would continue to benefit from falling rates, even into the negative territory. So that's that's why a lot of professional fixed income people are basically suggesting, you know, don't get out of your governments just yet. For, for exactly that reason, which is that just that you know the ride's not actually over at zero it does continue on below but that's not the problem you're actually facing but that's where that's really where the decision making landscape is becoming more and more complicated more confusing overall i mean because you're not just going to own 100% equities in your portfolio and that's why that's why this discussion is really valuable i think investors are wondering where do we go from here and i think i think you guys are on the right track That sounds like you're wrapping (laughs) this up. (laughs) Before we go, you know, we've been locked up for a couple months now. What have you guys been doing with your time? I mean, you know, we've had a lot of uh, time at home. Have you guys got any recommendations for anything you've been streaming on Netflix? You know what? I haven't been able to
1: see a a minute of Netflix. I fall asleep five minutes into everything.
0: As soon as you relax. No, it
1: is, I, I know every, everybody's like, oh, have yeah. you been watching? It's like, where do you guys find the time? <laughs> I used to have a commute where I used to be able to listen to podcasts. Now that's yeah. gone, right? So I wake up, I start making breakfast. The kids get up, fix them all up. My wife helps me out. Then I go straight to work, right? Because there's no commute. I just might as well start work. Then do all the work. At five o'clock, I start, you know, helping with dinner and uh, and. and mingling with the kids and it's bedtime then by the time i get the opportunity to even think about netflix i'm, like, I'm, I'm asleep i don't even know I, where is everybody else by yeah. the time that's when you pass out have you watched the last dance oh yeah everybody's yeah. telling me I, I watched save the last dance <laughs> the, uh... no 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 Anyway, yeah, you guys, everybody should look up "Save the Last Dance." I hear it's much better than than the Last Dance.
2: I I was very happy to have saved Ozark for for the pandemic, so we got we got through Ozark and and the Last Dance, and I found some actually really interesting, very positive net effects that have come out of this. In that, something like online poker. So I like to play poker. It's something I enjoy but i don't really trust the online game as much cuz you know you don't know who's there you don't know if they're collaborating and it's kind of one of those things where you know i'm i'm all up for that but i actually enjoy the conversation of other people that mm-hmm. i know and we're all you know we're all trying to shark each other's money it's mm-hmm. all small very small stakes obviously but it's the conversation that happens around you know it's something to do with your hands and and to gather right, and chat right. And so, you know, um, playing a little bit of online poker through the home games, like a lot of the, a lot of these apps have a home game where you can play a one cent, two cent, whatever, whatever your stakes are and however you want to sort that out, but it is allowed for like this, this rich, almost non-invasive because we will set a time. And even we, we play a little bit with our colleagues yeah. and, and we'll set a time. So on seven o'clock on Saturday night, we're going to, whoever can join, we'll join a game and we talk about. Everything from the books that we should be reading, you know, the three body problem to, you know, Hyperion to all kinds of different weird stuff you might read, what the various COVID conclusions are, where the, where the, where the science is, you know, BS and where the science is more rigorous. We have these great conversations. And then, you know, to show up at, at 7 p.m. means that you have to like get off the couch. You're like, oh, wait a second, yeah. it's 6.55. You don't have to commute to somebody's house. You can have a few drinks. You don't have to worry about the commute home because the commute turn home. Turn on is the warm. Zoom. You turn on the Zoom, and you and you just get this really rich conversation, which you don't you don't do otherwise. So I found
1: that to be Mike puts a, on the music in the background. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I think the so I have two games going. One with the Resolve crew and people that we know in the industry, and then another one with my friends from from college, where we could not for the life of get get a game together once a quarter. Yeah. Now we have it Now well, we're doing it every two weeks and it's the same idea like and, and what we have now is everybody joins somehow it turns out that we could have the guy from Mallorca join with the guy from Singapore with the guy from Peru and the guy from Vancouver all and everybody just kind of plays around with the time zone a little bit and you you have this uh, amazing catch up and we we realize that there's that this is likely to continue after everything goes back to normal so definitely zoom has been key but gathering around a game has been instrumental yeah, yeah. Right? Well,
2: even you and your brothers right your brothers from Peru, oh yeah we play we found playing, a peruvian uh,
1: Cachito, or... which is uh yeah. it's yeah it's a peruvian it's called liar's dice they have an app for that it's similar to liar's poker the game that you play with um with your yeah. dollar bills the u.s dollar bills and uh, yeah, I, I can't talk to my brothers and argue for four hours, but I can play a game and argue with them for four hours. And that's been kind of nice. So definitely find your crew. If you're not doing it already, get on a Zoom, find your crew, find a game that you're all willing to play, set a time and, and do it over and over. I got to say, if I don't have that on a weekly basis, I do feel like I'd be going a little insane. And I think it's because of that camaraderie and that discussion, that, that kind of free time. I've been able to stay sane, and it's—I've been one of the lucky ones in this world that has not really been affected emotionally or, or in, in terms of the business, in any meaningful way. So, very, very lucky that we have the yeah. internet and, uh, and these yeah. outcomes right now.
2: I got—I got it. My, my last recommendation is going to make me sound like a super nerd, but I'm, I'm back to playing Dungeons and
1: Dragons. <laughs> <laughs> That's terrific. So I
2: have a group of, uh, of super yeah. nerdy buddies that, that uh, you'd all know and love, and it's surprising who they are. And, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a probabilistic game, and it's a very interesting way to tell a story. And the, the 5e edition, it's surprising the popularity yeah. surgence it is experiencing. Now that might be just me because it's going to feed me whatever digital media that I'm into. So all I can say is like, holy mackerel! Everybody's doing this, which I'm sure is probably yeah. not the case. Are you sure, are
0: you sure, sure that's got nothing to do not, with Stranger Things?
2: Well, <laughs> you, you know what? You're absolutely right. You're you you're, you nail it. I forgot yeah. about that. The Stranger Thing. I remember when watching that, and I'm like, oh, I used to play Dungeons and Dragons, and my my kids would look at me like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why, why are you still here? Okay.
1: But even even <laughs> the wonderful thing about that those discussions we've been having were so awesome that somebody once mentioned you guys should have that live. Yeah. And so that that drove, we, we did our first live event on Friday called the, the Resolve Riffs yeah. podcast. So we have a podcast already. under if you look at Resolve, it's uh, Gestalt University. But now we're going to do a weekly three o'clock live, invite everybody to, to pipe in, ask questions, and the first one that we did on tail protection was a huge success. Yeah. We had a lot of fun with it. It doesn't feel like a job, and it came out of these these discussions, right? So,
0: yeah. good stuff. Do you, do you find that you guys that you guys have been less busy or busier? Busier. busier That's strange.
1: Yeah. You do yeah. more work. You do more work. Whoever thought, whoever said that having a remote workforce is going to reduce efficiency was clearly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's just you you just work more and and more my steps I got my aura ring here I've been cut by 80% I simply do not move from this space
2: I think that's the thing that you need to do that I've needed to do is sort of schedule walks schedule Mm -hmm. outdoor time really be focused or or diligent about making sure you get your exercise in because you, you, you usually would have the walk to the you know whether if you're commuting you walk to your car then you park or you get to the you know Downtown, you get to walk to your office. You probably get in a couple of kilometers just in your commute, and then you know walk down to get lunch. Here, it's like well, it's a seven-step walk to the lunch cafeteria. Yeah, (laughs) Um, it's a seven-step walk to the bathroom. You you do have to make sure you uh, prioritize your uh, interspersing that that activity into your day.
0: Yeah, I've been I've been listening to a lot more podcasts in during that time, but I find. That I've been going, I've been scheduling the walks. After I found, after a couple of weeks, that I was sitting on my ass for you know ten hours a day in front of the computer, you know, not really doing anything to get my blood flowing. That's that's when I get my uh, podcast listening time in. But love it, guys. It's been really great. It's been great to get back together with you again and catch up. And it's been a really great conversation today. Thank you. Thank you.
1: You are
0: well. always a pleasure. Take care. Ciao.